stole a mode is the solo mode Yo. And you're all alone in the solo mode And you miss your group Yo. or you had some kids Yo. But you bought some games, why did you buy those games? It's the solo mode, it's the solo mode And you're all alone in the solo mode And your group is gone or you had some kids But you bought those games, why did you buy those games? Yay. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Game Brain Solo Mode I am your host Matthew Robinson, and I am so happy to have you joining me today as we take a brief-ish, bite-sized look at a solo mode of a board game. I say brief-ish today because we are going to be reviewing PAX Transhumanity, and there's a lot to talk about here. There is, uh, I mean, I could fill an hour just talking about the footnotes on this thing, but we will get to that. Um, Tom and the gang will be back next week. They are out this week, but, uh, so I'm dropping a solo mode review on a Monday morning for you. Well, it'll be Monday afternoon by the time this goes up. Um, let's get into it. Uh, I love PAX games. If you've heard me talk about, uh, PAX games at all on this podcast, you know that I am a fan of the series. What it, what are PAX games? Well, we've got PAX Porfiriana, which is the first one. Then we've got PAX Renaissance, which is fantastic. We have... PAX Pamir 2nd Edition, which was my number one game of the year for 2019, uh, PAX Emancipation, and now we have PAX Transhumanity. Um, this probably deserves a multiplayer review at some point on the podcast. Um, I'm going to give you a lot of my thoughts on it in general today, but also, of course, focusing on the solo aspects of it. This is a very heavy, very complicated, um, very bizarre game. That does not play like any other game you've ever played. It doesn't even really play like that many other PAX games. Um, this was designed by Matt Eklund, who is Phil Eklund's son. Let's let's let me give you a brief background on uh, Sierra Madre. So Sierra Madre is uh, Phil Eklund uh, and his son's board game company. Uh, they recently joined up with Ion Games, so now they are they are one and the same. I think Ion is a European publisher. If uh, I could be mistaken, but I believe so. And they mostly just re uh, release uh, Matt's and Phil's games. Although uh, I think John Manker, who works for Iron Games, has a couple games out with them as well. John Manker designed the solo variant of Pax Transhumanity, and we'll be talking about that. Um, but Phil Eklund sort of jumped on the scene with a game called uh, High Frontier that I'm, I know you've heard Tom talk about a lot. He loves that game. Um, a wildly complicated game about uh, leaving Earth and space travel. Um, why would somebody make a game like that? Well, because Phil Eklund was a aerospace engineer and rocket scientist, um, and now game designer. His son is a prosecutor um, and also a gamer. Of course, they're both big gamers, and they have made some of the heaviest, craziest, uh, most uh, original board games that our hobby has ever seen. Um, and I think uh, I don't think that's a disputable point. Uh, they they make very interesting games. They bring a lot to the hobby. Um, Phil Eklund is also uh, <laughs> uh, frustrating, uh, mainly because he he feels the the well he has the right to do it. Of course, it's his company. He he puts these footnotes in a lot of his games. Um, Oh, what's the best way to say this? Uh, have you ever been stuck in a room with a libertarian on cocaine? 
Um, <laughs> I think that might give you a fit. We're going to get into that. I, I'm going to save that for the end. I'm going to sort of talk about his footnotes on this one. Uh, spoiler alert, they're, they're a little rough, but they're not as bad as Pax Transhumanity in terms of your desire to throw the rule book across the room and curse his name. Um, does not stop me from enjoying the games, but it, it's definitely something that, well, I'm just going to talk about it because he put the footnotes in there, so I get to talk about them. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's going to be fun. We'll get into that in a little bit. So uh, designed by Matt Eklund, his son. Matt also was one of the co-designers on, or, or co-designer on uh, Pax Porfiriana, which is Tom's favorite game in the Pax uh, series, and also the first. Um, and this is the first game since then that I believe Matt has designed. I think this is the first game that Matt has designed just on his own. His father actually didn't design this game. At least he's not credited as a designer, of course. He's credited as a developer and the head of the, the company that puts it out. But um, Matt designed the game. His father's is uh, his only credited contribution here is in writing the footnotes, which is amazing. Um, and uh, the game plays one to four players. Obviously, has a built-in solo mode, which is designed by John Manker uh, of Ion Games, and now also Sierra Madre and Ion Games. They're together. Um, yeah, let's let's talk about let's just let's just get into it. Let's just get into it. This is there's a this is a this is a very very complicated game. I'm not going to teach you how to play this game because it would take an hour. I highly recommend that you go watch a video called Learning Pax Transhumanity, which is on the Phasing Player YouTube channel. I love the Phasing Player YouTube channel. P H A S I N G Player. Uh, I think that this, this guy's fantastic. He's done a lot of great videos for Pax games and very heavy games. I adore everything he does. Highly recommend you watch that. Feel free to go watch it right now, even if you wanted to. Come back, listen to the review as we'll talk about it. I'm going to get into the basics of the game, like, you know, the what it feels like to play, and I'll be talking about it a lot. If you wanted to go watch it, you could. I'll wait. Welcome back. And now let us talk about the game. What is the theme of this game? Um, well, the theme is sort of one of the best parts of this game. Now, PAX games his, have always been historical uh, semi-simulations, right? They're, they are, they take place in, it's sort of, a lot of these books feel like you've bought a history book and each card is a different page or chapter. And by the time you've played the game 10 or 20 times, you feel like you have immersed, uh, immersed yourself in this historical setting and learned a lot about it and also gotten, <laughs> for better or for worse, uh, Phil Eklund's take on a lot of this stuff too. Um, Pax Transhumanity takes place in the future. Uh, it takes place in a utopian future. Maybe utopian is a little strong. Not dystopian. Let's say that. Um, I'm going to read you from uh, from uh, VGG itself. This is their description of the game, uh, of the theme. What if there is no dystopia, no societal collapse, no nuclear war, no post-apocalypse? What if these ideas make for great fiction, but bad forecasting? What if humanity's lot continues to improve decade after decade as it has since the scientific revolution? Thanks to accelerating human progress, today is objectively, on the average, the best time in human history to be a human being. It is so hard to imagine, is it so hard to imagine, the hardworking scientists, civil servants, and activists might be able to stay the course. So even in there, you're going to get a little bit of uh, the philosophy of the game, which is very much... Um, Everything is great and will continue to be great, um, which uh, <laughs> I, I can feel my uh, my white privilege alarm going off on that pretty quickly. Uh, but either way, um, a very interesting and original theme. 
what if everything in the future is going to be great and things just continue to get better? So this is definitively a anti-dystopian game. Um, what if we're able to solve all our problems? And in fact, that is what you will be doing in this game is helping humanity solve the problems it faces right now so that we can step into our glorious futures. Um, so much like PAX games, to me when I think, like people ask like, what is, what is a PAX game? It's always to me sort of about how the individual has the ability to change the course of history. In every PAX game, you play a person. You don't play a country. You're not, you're not Italy. You don't play a government. You play a person. And you as that person have the ability to change the course of history. In this game, you have a choice. You can be a blogger, a doctor, a colonel, or a citizen. I don't know why citizen is necessarily different from all of those. I assume they are all also citizens, maybe not the colonel. I would imagine a blogger is still a citizen. Um, but anyway, those are your four choices in this game. There's no real asymmetrical start. There is uh, a turn order start. The blogger goes first and has a little bit less starting capital, things like that. Uh, but otherwise, they all are the same other than in name and starting uh, financial situations. Um, let me read to you uh, how uh, the designer describes this game. As a startup entrepreneur in the not-too-distant future, you make your living by offering new ideas and visions. The position and number of financial agents on your fin finance board track your financial resources. Move these agents within your finance board to generate money or move them from the finance board as employees, patents, and syndications. You have two actions each turn, which can include syndicating ideas in the market to gain their special abilities, commercializing previously syndicated ideas to start up companies or solve problems, hiring employees, importing idea cards from one sphere to another, placating outraged activists, and researching columns of ideas in order to gain patents and reveal new ideas. Are you exhausted yet? You will be. Uh, this is a uh, the amount of... Another thing, like a couple other hallmarks of PAX games to me are just jargon. Just shop talk jargon all day long. Uh, you you almost have to learn a new language every time you learn one of these games because, you know, instead of just using words like, you know, remove a cube, they have to call it placate heat, or you know, or, or you know, to to put a cube on a card, they call it syndication. You know, you just have to learn all their words. Um, but some people uh, are excited by that prospect. I am one of those people. I like a challenge like that. Um, and I like getting into their silly shop talk and stuff. It's fun. It's my the most LARP I get, most LARPing I get in a game usually. Um, another hallmark of PAX games are two actions per turn. They keep it simple. They keep it fast. Turns are very quick in PAX games. Uh, AP is definitely an issue, but turns are quick at least. Um, beyond that, uh, there is a card market in every PAX game. This one works a little differently. It, usually the card market uh, is a conveyor belt. Buy a card, at the end of your turn, the cards slide down. In this one, they don't. In this one, there's, there's you have to take an action in order for new cards to come out, and that drastically changes the way the game plays. Um, it's actually really interesting, too, because the deck is a little smaller in this than I feel like it is in most, and... Um, the clock, the end game clock of the game is something you are in a lot more control of in this game than I feel like in most other games where it's usually just a constant conveyor belt and no matter what actions you take, usually the conveyor belt is going to keep moving in most PAX games. But in this one, it's really somebody has to do something in order for 
the deck to keep moving and the end game conditions to be met, um, which is definitely a huge part of the strategy in this game is figuring out how to control that clock to your benefit. So let's talk a little bit about um, how the game plays. Uh, and we're going to get into a lot of the fun shop talk here. So first of all, you've got something called a human progress splay. The human progress splay is uh, the main thing in the game that you're going to be manipulating in order to make everything happen. So it's a card-based game. And at the beginning of the game, you're going to... the card. Each card, let me just describe a card. Each card has one colored strip on the end of each card. So for example, a card could have green on the left and orange on the right. Uh, what If they're on left or right is irrelevant. It's just the, the pair of the colors. Sometimes it's two of the same color, so orange-orange. When you... Uh, we're going to get into shop talk here. When you commercialize a card, you can add it to the display and you choose which color is added to the display. Okay. So at the beginning of the game, you randomly add one and you put the left side of the card there. Let's say the first color is blue. I commercialize a card. I pick which color I'm adding to the display. Now the human progress display has, let's say a blue and an orange. Okay. Once there are, uh, once there, well, okay. There's also a thing called the cutting edge. So the cutting edge is whatever the colors are on the last three cards in the human progress play. That is gonna decide the regime. So in, in all PAX games, that's another hallmark, is you can sort of change what rules can be broken every during the game by sort of what regime is in charge or sort of what sphere where, it, well, sphere is another word they use for something else in this game, but sort of, so basically in the cutting edge, if there are two blues, then you are now in the cloud sphere. And now there's a rule breaking thing of research now costs zero and, and, and on and on. So whatever the last, you look at the, the last three cards in the human progress play, that's called the cutting edge. If there are more than two of the same color in that, it's going to change the regime and the rules are going to be broken in some cool way. Um, and you can manipulate that, et cetera, et cetera. The, that is also going to be very important because at the end of the game, uh, whatever is the dominant sphere, meaning the uh, majority of cards in the cutting edge is going to decide what actually scores victory points and this is a very low scoring game i mean this is this is like bus where a six point game is a, a high a high scoring game um i've only played one multiplayer game of this and many many solo games of this but um so maybe it's different in a four player or three player game but i have found scores are very low in this game you know five six points maybe ten points i, I my first game i ever won was ten points and the ai second place had nine points um and that to me felt like a very high score. Uh, so it's a low scoring game. Um, and what's cool is it's very easy to teach what is going to actually score in this game. Um, companies that you start are worth one point each uh, for the most part and problems that you solve are worth one point each. So, and there are four different spheres in the game. Uh, there is cloud. There is first world, there is space, and there is developing world. So you are building companies in either of the in any, one of those four spheres and solving problems in those spheres. And at the end of the game, whatever is the one in the dominant sphere, when the game ends, at the exact moment the game ends, you look at the dominant sphere, you get two points for every company or problem you've solved in that. And then you also have one hidden sphere that you will get a face down card at the beginning of the game where you get two and you pick one. That color will then score one point for each problem and company. And that's pretty much it. There's a couple sort of weird uh, end game conditions as well, of course. Another hallmark of the PAX games are many, many, many different ways to win the game. Um, that's usually how the game will end. There's also a tycoon victory 
where if you have to place your fifth company, you instantly win the game. That actually happens more often than you would imagine, uh, at least after you first learn the game. And uh, then there is a singularity uh, victory condition, which is when the AI wins, which is fun. And that means that there are five of the same, jeez, uh, 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 what are the words I'm always forgetting? Five of the same colors in the human display in a row which there are cool ways to manipulate the human display, the human progress display and mess with that. And if it ever there are five in a row, well, you have awoken the AI and singularity is upon us. And now the only thing that scores is future shock, which that won't mean anything to you um, until we get into what future shock is later on. Uh, there's also a plurality ending, which is if basically just the end game timer. If you get to the last card in the deck and it gets discarded, then you score plurality, which scores the exact same as singularity. So what are you doing in this game? Well, you are taking two actions, like in every PAX game for the most part, at least every PAX game that I've played. Um, the only PAX game I haven't played is Emancipation, but they all have two actions per turn. Um, you are commercializing and researching. Those are, those are your two main goals, right? Those are the two main actions you're gonna be taking in this game. Uh, commercializing is how you add cards to the human progress play. It's also how you get companies. It's also how you solve uh, problems. It's how you make your points. It is the main goal of the action, and of course, there are many, many, many steps you have to take in order to even get to the commercialized possibility. Uh, research is another important thing. Research gives you patents, which can be big money and can help you uh, commercialize. Basically, every other action of the game is things you're gonna need to do in order to commercialize, and there are many, many steps to take it. You've gotta have enough money to do it, which you've gotta fundraise. You've got to have, it's gotta be a viable idea, meaning you've gotta have the patents for it or you've gotta have a card in your think tank. I mean, it gets it gets deep, guys. It is a complicated game, like I said. Um, and I'm not gonna explain all the rules, but I, I do wanna give you a feel for just sort of how LARPy and fun and, and intense. I mean, you'll find yourself saying things like, um, I have unsubsidized thinker work that I need to spend in order to pay the barrier cost so that I can syndicate this idea and add it to my think tank. Like that's a sentence you'll find yourself saying to yourself while playing this game or saying to somebody else. And uh, it will make sense in the in the realm of the game. Um, let's see. Um, so let's now move into my favorite part of the game, which is the cards. This is a card game. This is like all PAX games, they are card based. And the cards are what bring the theme to life. The cards are what bring the game to life. The cards are everything. Uh, so the, let's just talk about the anatomy of a card really quick. So your average card is going to have a, a really funny name. Um, and we're going to get into that. It's my, one of my favorite parts of the game is the sort of the, uh, the theme and the satire and humor and fun they had designing all these cards. Um, and on the sides of the cards, there might be something called white heat or black heat. And we're going to get into heat. When you commercialize a deal, you get all the impacts on the side. The impacts are your rewards for commercializing. They're often companies, which again are points, or they are uh, problems you've solved, which are points as well. Um, so let's talk about uh, white heat and black heat. But first of all, so the, the cards to me, like, and what's so wonderful about most PAX games is that you really do feel like you're diving into a novel with these things. Uh, each of these cards could be an episode of Black Mirror. Or, or an entire science fiction novel. And there is there is a nearly endless wealth of creativity, humor, and satire on display here. And it is the most impressive part of this game to me. To the point where I am going to say right now, this is my favorite science fiction board game I've ever played. Um, I absolutely adore science fiction. It is my 
favorite genre of fiction. Uh, it is the genre I write in more often than not. It is my favorite thing in the world. This is the most fun science fiction board game I've ever played. And, and, and undoubtedly the most creative and ambitious as well. And let us now talk about some of these cards so that uh, you can see what I mean by that. But first, I have to explain what White Heat and Black Heat is because that is where a lot of the fun and satire and humor is going to come from. So what is White Heat? Well, I'm going to let Matt Eklund describe it. This is how he described it on a BG post, uh, Board Game Geek post, post sorry. Uh, White Heat represents budgeting needed to combat entrenched interests of public discomfort in order to adopt a new controversial idea. Now, in my own words, it's basically somebody protesting the idea you're trying to learn. Each of these cards is an idea, okay? Each of these cards is some sort of idea that you as a person in the game are going to try to bring into existence. You are trying to add it to the, uh, the, the, the knowledge of humanity. So, for example, uh, let's say bio... Catronic implants. What are biocatronic implants? Let's read the flavor text. Mechanical devices integrated into human biology to improve physical capabilities and well-being. Okay, that's an idea. Cool little idea they, they've added here. Now that'll be in the idea uh, market that you can decide to bring to life, but you can't just decide that that idea comes into life. The human progress play has to be ready for it. So in order for the human progress play to be ready for it, the colors on the side of the card have to be viable. So uh, let's talk about the uh, four different colors that every card comes in in the game. And the word they use for these colors is disciplines. Uh, the four disciplines are assembly, group dynamics, transbiology, and computing. And if you are astute, you have noticed that the beginning of those letters are A, G, T, C. Aha! The DNA of humanity. So once there are these two colors next to each other in this play. So biocatronic implants needs yellow and orange or transbiology and assembly. Once those two colors are somewhere in this play adjacent to each other, doesn't need to be in the cutting edge, just adjacent to each other anyway, anywhere, then thematically humanity is ready for this idea. We have learned the things necessary in order to uh, be open to this idea, but there are still certain parts of society that need to be dealt with sounds wrong, uh, <laughs> placated, let's say placated. Um, so now you will understand a little more what white heat and black heat means. So the white heat is immediate protest to this idea, a part of our society that is saying, while technically we are ready to have this idea introduced, we are still afraid of it. Uh, Luddites, if you know what the word Luddites mean, I'll say Luddites is a good example for that. Um, basically, the white heat are a stupid problem that you have to deal with because people are dumb. I would imagine that is how the designers see it. These are people that are dragging their feet to human progress, holding up the inevitable out of irrational fear. And you have to spend more cubes in order to placate them. They are necessary additions to a card. So if you want to syndicate this idea, which is a fancy word for add a cube to this idea, if you want to syndicate this idea, you also have to give another cube in order to placate the this specific section of society that is dragging their feet on this idea. And uh, now you'll see a little bit of the humor in the game. The heat that needs to be placated here are freaks. 
just says freaks, just <laughs> freaks. Uh, you have to deal with that, you know, people are going to think you look like a freak with a biocatronic implant in your body. They're going to think you're not a human. They're going to be freaked out by having, you know, machinery implanted into our bodies. So you have to deal with this thought in people's heads that we are freaks now. So you have to placate that white heat. Some cards also have black heat on it, which are optional. You do not have to placate these. So what is black heat? Black heat, described by Matt Eklund, is... Uh, represents the optional cost of installing safeguards to discourage the weaponization of a new idea. Uncovered black heat icons that enter the human progress play represent real threats to human civilization. These threats can be mitigated through the diffusal growth impact. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm going to just stop saying that. Here's, here's I'll, I'll explain it to you. These are long-term risks, dystopian ideas, optional problems that you should deal with, things that actually matter but are optional and yet rewarded in certain endgame conditions. That's how you can think of them. Um, so these are optional. So I'm, I'm going to give you some of my favorite cards in this game uh, so you can see, I guess, just the fun they were having in designing these. Um, they, Like I said, each one of these uh, could totally be an episode of Black Mirror. So let's start with Femtech Wireless. But this is I'm going to read you the flavor text, and I'm going to tell you what the white heat and the black heat are, if there is black heat. They don't all have both. Uh, some don't have either. Wireless birth control, personal bubble wearables, fertility modification, emasculation drugs, and human parthenogenesis. Uh, parthenogenesis, I looked it up, by the way. It means uh, not needing fertilization and reproduction. Um, the white heat that must be dealt with here are alpha males. Sure, alpha males. You got to deal with alpha males who are going to be upset about femtech. Um, this also... Uh, solves a so each of these has the potential of solving a barrier to its creation so these are the problems that you can solve that you can have end game points for at the end the barrier this solves is women's health okay sure next is open source sexuality remember these are all ideas that could be created by you in this game Open source sexuality, the exploration and acceptance of a dramatically expanded definition of consensual relationships. Compersion replaces jealousy. Compersion means uh, the feeling of joy one has experiencing another's joy. Um, monosexuality, polyamory, and asexuality become normalized. Uh, one of my favorite white heat uh, in the entire game here is prudes. You've got to you got to placate the prudes here if you want open source sexuality. Uh, and the barrier that this will solve are hate groups. Sure, makes sense. Uh, this is a fun one. Um, I feel like this is the plot of Neuromancer. Enslaved God, a super intelligent and conscious AI confined by humans. Although tasked to pursue human goals, there is nothing stopping a conscious being from deriving its own values. The white heat that must be solved here are absolutionists, and the black heat is escape don't necessarily know what escape means, but I spent a while thinking about it and it was fun to think about and I still don't have an answer. The escape, escape, like human escape from earth or what, I, maybe it's a, that the enslaved God will escape. I guess that's it, that you don't want the AI to get out and, and be out of your control. Anyway, just fun. Um, let's see, what else do we have here? <laughs> this is a good one. Uh, last resort punishment. The imposition of punitive incarceration only for individuals who pose an ongoing danger to society while repurposing resources for outpatient treatment, rehabilitative programs, and juvenile interdiction. 
the white heat here is clockwork orange rehab. Absolutely. That is exactly what they were describing. Uh, the barrier that you'll solve here is disenfranchisement. Um, I'll just read you two more because they're too fun. Uh, centralized construct AI, a scruffy Frankenstein AI in which dispersed elements are under centralized control. The white heat you have to solve here is Frankenstein. <laughs> sure. I mean, literally, uh, we could have some sort of AI Frankenstein. You got you to gotta deal with that. The black heat here is human machine war. Ah, yes. The black heat is Terminator 2. Uh, make sure that doesn't happen in the future. Uh, the first world barrier you must solve here is artificial consciousness. Consciousness, yes, that is uh, something we have not solved yet at all. And you would have to figure that out before you can create centralized construct AI. Um, the last one I'll read you is universal property directory. The upload of all property transactions into a blockchain subjects waste, fraud, taxation, and corruption to public and official scrutiny. The master database would start with real estate and property rights, but evolve into tracking money, IP, and contractual rights. These are, I've just read you the flavor text on a card. Uh, just so much fun they're having here. The white heat is shadow rich, and the black heat are jealous mobs. Uh, the barriers that this would solve are disenfranchisement and social immobility. Um, could you play this game as an abstract and never look at the flavor text or the names of the cards that you are trying to bring ideas into the future and uh yes you could um would you be missing the best part of this game absolutely the, if you are going to play this game and not read each card and talk about the hilarity of them as you bring them into life and what problems you are solving then you are uh, not the right audience for this game um, is the game an incredible mechanical experience as well yes but combined with them together i think it is a beautiful combination of theme and uh, uh, mechanics. Okay. How does this play as a solo game? Um, not amazingly. Just going to put that out there. Not horribly either. Uh, PAX Premier Second Edition has an incredible solo mode in it designed by Ricky Royal. We did a uh, podcast episode on Game Brain with Ricky Royal talking all about it. You can go listen to that. Um, that's the gold standard of PAX solo modes. Um, this fails to live up to that of no fault of its own i mean that was that that that's a masterpiece to me of, of a solo design and this is it's okay um i'm going to give you my score i'm going to give this a 7.0 as a solo mode um you are the, the, the solo mode is fine it was it's basically you take a stack of cards that are not being used in the game and when you flip them over the impacts on the cards have a new definition that are ai actions um I think it plays a, a, a little differently. My, the first time I played it, I thought it was broken because you can get into a bad loop in the game where the AI just wins really quickly with a tycoon victory, meaning that it just drops a ton of uh, companies on the game and it feels like there's nothing you can do. Um, the more you play it, the more you realize there, there are things you can do. You, you have to play a little differently than you might in a multiplayer game, but it's actually made me start thinking about maybe that's the best way to play a multiplayer game too. You have to play a lot more aggressively to hurt the AI. You can't just focus on how you're gonna get victory points. You have to figure out how you're gonna stop the AI from building companies as well, um, because that's sort of your ticking clock in this game. And you need to also, they're never going to research, and research is the only way that new cards are brought out. So when the AI never researches, the game clock will never start unless you start it, which is a really interesting thing because it, it sort of trains you to understand the game clock 
Um, so this might be one of those solo modes that's really good at teaching you how to become better at the multiplayer game. Is the solo mode on its own fun enough to justify only playing this as a solo mode? I'm going to say no, um, with some caveats that we'll get into later. Uh, I, I've really enjoyed my plays of it. Um, I don't know if after my review I'll go back to playing it. I, I, I'll say this. I would definitely rather play a multiplayer game. Um, but I think I, I, I do think the solo mode will make you a better multiplayer player. And I, I didn't think that at first. At first I felt, well, nobody's going to play like this and it's broken. But it really trains you to control the clock. Because you have to keep the game moving. And you have to chase your victory condition while denying the others. Which sounds simple. But I mean, in terms of that's obviously a good strategy. But um, in your first few games of Pax Transhumanity, you might not be able to do that you might you might be overwhelmed just by figuring out how the hell you're going to get five or six points put together by the end of this game um, and this will make you a better Pax Transhumanity player in that you will have to learn how to do both and it's hard you have to learn how to chase your victory conditions while denying the others and if you don't do both you will lose um, so yeah like I said I'm going to give this a 7.0 as a solo mode on its own um, with more plays, I could see giving this multiplayer game a 9 or a 10. Um, I'm going to say that I, the experience of learning Pax Transhumanity was a 9 for me. Um, if you enjoy learning complicated games, you will get your money's worth with this, even as a solo experience. Um, and beyond that, I uh, I just absolutely love learning Pax games. I'm At this point now, I'm an unabashed Sierra Madre fanboy. I I will buy everything they put out. I recently purchased the Earth Trilogy, which is BIOS Origins, BIOS Megafauna, and BIOS Genesis, and I cannot wait to get those to the solo table and the multiplayer table. Um, I cannot wait to get the new edition of uh, High Frontier, which I kickstarted. I'm, I'm just in for everything that Matt and Phil Eklund put out. Um, I just love the experience. That being said, let us talk about Crazy Phil Eklund's footnotes, because we have to. And Phil, if you're going to publish them, I'm going to talk about them. Uh, Okay. This is how Phil describes the footnotes. Uh, These describe the science and philosophy behind the technology and politics of the game, according to Phil Eklund, and not necessarily his son, Matt. I wonder who made him put that there. (laughs) Because if I was Matt, I would have said, Dad, you better say I didn't write these. Um, so about a third of the footnotes, I'd say, are written by Phil Eklund, and the rest are quotes. Many of the quotes taken from a book called The Rational Optimist, uh, a book I have not read, um, but from doing a little bit of research on it, because he quoted it so often, it was obviously the main inspiration for this book for him, this idea of uh, uh, a future non-dystopia um, clearly he was highly influenced by the reading of this one book called The Rational Optimist. Um, from what I gather, I would say the theme of the book is shut up, everything is fine. <laughs> um, shut up, this is the best time to be alive. Okay, but no, everything is great. That that <laughs> that sort of feels like uh, from the reviews I read and the blurbs I read, uh, that's sort of the vibe I got from it. Again, didn't read the book, just telling you how it felt learning about it. Um, there are, look, the Pax Transhumanity stuff feels unabashedly, 
I mean, sorry, the, the PAX uh, Renaissance stuff at times feels unabashedly cringy and maybe racist. And I don't, I, that's, that's a, a review for a different day. So th- this, this wasn't as rough. This wasn't as annoying. Um, maybe racist is the wrong word to use. I, I don't want to just throw that around nonchalantly, but it, it's cringy. It's cringy. I don't know how else to say it. Um, it feels like one giant okay boomer in a sense. Um, there's a couple footnotes here that I'm not, I'm not pointing these out to like start controversy or anything. I, they're just, I think it's a relevant part of discussing this game. Phil Eklund has a, uh, a strong opinion on things to say it lightly, and he wants to share them. And so we shall discuss them um, because that is the conversation we are having with art. So, uh, the most egregious one to me is some pretty baseless anti-environmentalist, anti-environmentalist conspiracy theories about the banning of DDT being the cause of malaria deaths in Africa. I, I, yeah, I know. I, I as well was like, where is this coming from? I didn't even understand this 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 claim, so I, I did a little research on it. Apparently, there is sort of a new movement among conservative anti-environmentalists to demonize Rachel Carson's groundbreaking book silent spring which maybe you as along with myself in college read uh which is sort of the book that single-handedly led to the banning of ddt apparently there's a theory that 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 ddt is fine and that by banning it we in fact caused i'll just read you what phil wrote here uh well-meaning activists so this is the footnote uh, attached to the placate heat action which is the ability where you can remove cubes from the white heat on the cards. Well-meaning activism to block technology can be catastrophic. The worldwide ban on the use of DDT, even though this pesticide has never been demonstrated to harm humans nor accumulate in the food chain, constitutes the biggest man-made disaster of all time. Without DDT spraying, malaria and typhus in Asia and Africa rebounded from close to zero to deadly pre-1950s levels. India, for instance, suffered 800,000 malarial deaths in 1947, reduced to no deaths and total control using DDT in 1965. But after the DDT ban rebounded to over 500,000 in 1971, this magnitude of lives saved only to rebound was echoed in Zanzibar, Venezuela, Nepal, Peru, Uganda, Taiwan. African fatalities remain to this day over a half million per year. Um, Supporters of the ban, such as the Malthusians, Paul Ehrlich, Michael McCloskey of the Sierra Club and Alexander King of the Club of Rome stated that malaria was useful as population control for the developing world. I will put that he did not put the last part in quotes because that is not something they said. Um, yeah, uh, that was the that was the that was the footnote that was rough. Um, there's others that's pretty rough. I felt like doing a little research on that because I was like, I don't even know where you're coming from. It's just, it's like hearing like a random conspiracy theory, like on YouTube and just being like, what people believe that. Oh, okay. Um, I, I, I found an article of, cause I just wanted to know like, where, where's this controversy about DDT coming from? So I found an article, uh, I'm going to try to quote the article. It was from the, uh, the pesticide action network of North America or pan, they wrote a thing. It was just giving me some some background. Um, excuse me. Recently, Carson's work has been targeted by conservative groups 
Capitalizing on the iconic status of DDT, these groups are promoting widespread use of the chemical for malaria control as part of a broader effort to manufacture doubt about the dangers of pesticides and to promote their anti-regulatory free market agenda while attempting to undermine and roll back the environmental movement's legacy. Attacks on Carson from groups like the groups like the Competitive Enterprise Institute and Africa Fighting Malaria portray DDT as the simple solution to malaria and blame Carson for millions of deaths in Africa. Many of these DDT promoters are also in the business of denying climate change, no shock there, and defended the tobacco industry by denying health harms of smoking. Um, just a little background on DDT here as well. The science on DDT's human health impacts has continued to mount over the years, with recent studies showing harm at very low levels of exposure. Studies show a range of human health effects linked to DDT and its groundbreaking product, DDE, including breast and other cancers, male infertility, miscarriage and low birth weight, developmental delay, nervous system and liver damage. Unfortunately, vocal groups such as Africa Fighting Malaria continue to promote a simplistic DDT or nothing debate, ignoring on-the-ground evidence from around the world that more effective approaches are saving lives without putting communities in harm from exposure to long lasting to this long lasting chemical. Now, I'm not an expert in DDT, but I um, I'm not also the one claiming uh, on the footnotes of my board game that uh, DDT and environmental groups um, are the cause of countless deaths of DDT. <laughs> yeah. Um, Let's move on to some other ones here. Uh, there's also a very clear Anne Randian sort of pro-billionaire vibe take going on throughout the whole thing. I'll, I'll read the patent sales footnote here. Where licensed ideas are indexed, bought, and sold uh, may replace the stock market in a future where what is valuable becomes less and less tangible. The era, the era of the stereotypical Saudi oil men or other super rich monopolizer of scarce resources is over, if it ever existed. Today's rich usually have invested not in stuff but in ideas, especially in Wall Street or the developing world. There are a couple thousand billionaires in the world today, and most, 60%, made their money themselves rather than inheriting it. Taking the hardcore controversial pro-billionaire line there. He also has odd takes on nuclear war, uh, which is a part of the game, by the way. Uh, <laughs> most end-game conditions um, uh, end in nuclear war, which is not what you'd expect. Uh, and nuclear war can be devastating to your companies, uh, obviously, and your patents uh, and the human progress play. It's a very strange, and every game is going to end with usually some sort of nuclear attack happening out of nowhere. I know I never mentioned that, but it's a thing. Uh, nuclear, this is from Phil, uh, nuclear war is perhaps the most plausible of the doomsday scenarios. Yet since the fall of the Soviet empire, global arms spending has fallen by 30% and three quarters of the nuclear missiles have been dismantled. This amazing accomplishment has almost gone unnoticed. Well, except by you clearly, Phil. Uh, Nuclear war? The most likely doomsday scenario, really? Not not global warming? or I mean, Australia's literally on fire, but okay. okay. Um, it's also, he also has a really good sense of humor. I'm not, I'm not, I, uh, clearly we've seen that on the cards. I, 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 you know, I mean, his son is uh, credited as the designer, so I assume he wrote the cards, but there, there's, there's, he's, he's a funny man as well. Uh, he, he writes, uh, Luddites are not so much anti-technology as anti-change. Humans are so intertwined with the technium that they use it to rant against it. Thoreau made regular supply trips into town from Walden Pond. The Amish adopt technology as fast as most of society, albeit with a 50-year lag. The Unabomber shopped routinely at Walmart, and Chris McCandless lived in a bus and shot game with a rifle before he starved. Any critic claiming technology's benefits are illusory 
Uh, illusionary is both wrong and hypocritical. And as much as technology is voluntarily adopted, it must improve the life of any rational technology user. The fact is that technology advances our lives, the economy, and civilization, yet fails to guarantee the job security for buggy whip manufacturers. Well said. Um, look, I, I, I wanted to give you a taste of uh, Phil Eklund's uh, footnotes. I also just find it fun to talk about Phil Eklund's footnotes, and this is my podcast and I get to do that. Um, but I want you to be able to decide for yourself if footnotes like those will detract from your enjoyment of the game. They do not for me. Uh, I like a good curmudgeon, even if, maybe especially if I disagree with them, which I do uh, vehemently on many of the things that we just discussed there. Uh, but um, to me, it's uh, old man shouting at clouds and uh, damn, he makes good games so he can shout at the clouds all he wants. Um, and I enjoy I enjoy the way he shouts. Uh, look, I... I absolutely love learning PAX games. I'm a massive fan. Um, and trans, trans humanity is no exception. I love wrestling with the rule book. I love learning it, knowing it backwards and forwards. It makes me feel smart. It makes me feel like I accomplished something, getting this table to the table and playing it correctly. Um, to me, PAX Transhumanity is a work of art that I am proud to own and have in my collection. And I can easily say this is the best science fiction board game I've ever played. And I hope for you that you have decided if this is something that you are interested in as a solo game. Um, like I said earlier, owning it and learning it and reading the cards and all of it is an experience I would liken to buying a book that you become obsessed with for a few weeks. Um, Books are maybe my favorite solo mode game <laughs> as much as uh, you wrestle with a good novel and it feels like, uh, you know, a very active, not passive experience. PAX games are an active, not, act, not passive experience. And uh, if that sounds enjoyable to you, hopefully I've given you enough information for you to decide for yourself. Thank you so much for listening. We went a little long today, as I said we would, um, but what can I say? This was a PAX game. I will see you next time, hopefully in a week or two, with a review of Nemo's War Second edition. Goodbye. Solar mode is the solar mode. Yo. And you're all alone in the solar mode. And you miss your group Yo. or you had some kids. Yo. But you bought some games. Why did you buy those games? It's the solo mode. It's the solo mode. And you're all alone in the solo mode. And your group is gone or you had some kids. But you bought those games. Why did you buy those games? <laughs> Sorry.